Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me this Wednesday, February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day. It is also Ash Wednesday. I don't know how we missed Fat Tuesday yesterday. We should have been... You know, marching around and throwing necklaces and <laughs> everything that they do uh, in the Mardi Gras parade before Ash Wednesday. But um, happy Valentine's Day, if uh, that's the kind of thing that um, you feel like acknowledging or celebrating. Yes, I know it's a manufactured holiday, but I don't know. I sort of reached the age where I want all the holidays. I want every day to be a holiday. I want every day to be five holidays wrapped up together. Um, why not? Life's short. Let's celebrate. <laughs> so uh, we have a new uh, member of Congress, a new Democratic member of Congress, Tom uh, Swozy, won his election the election where George Santos vacated seat was up for grabs. Now, um, this guy was the congressman from that district for, um, from I think 2019 to 2023. He left to run for governor in New York. Obviously that didn't, um, succeed for him. And when the seat became open again, he ran again. Um, the Republican woman he ran against was, it was, she was kind of interesting. She started life as a registered Democrat. And then over time, she apparently not just moved to a more conservative point of view. She went full on MAGA. I mean, she was like, you know, uh, we want an abortion ban. And I mean, just full on MAGA. I'm not quite sure how that happens. Um, people like that who are capable, you know, of, of moving from one position to another, maybe it's that they have matured and they see things differently. Or maybe it's that the initial positions they took, they really weren't that attached to. Maybe people like that are always going to go with what's expedient. Kirsten Cinema, I'm looking at you. Green Party candidate? I mean, Green Party. What did you associate that with middle of the road democracy? No! <clears throat> Green Party candidacy? You associate that with um, being um, lefty. and uh, And then all of a sudden... These big corporate donors came calling and uh, Kirsten Cinema started seeing life through their lens as opposed to the Green Party lens. Also, by all accounts, anybody who had been um, greenie, who was an advisor to her, they were drummed out. They were shown the door. And uh, by all accounts, part of her, because she basically destroyed her political career. 
um, the people close to her were supposedly telling her that if she could just start rebuking Biden and embracing more uh, right, a far right point of view, that, you know, she had a real shot at the presidency because she would appeal to both sides. And what she ended up doing was um, appealing to nobody. Democrats didn't want anything more to do with her. And she she wasn't Republican enough for the Republicans. And um, she hasn't even announced last time she was asked whether she was going to run for reelection because, you know, there's a Democrat in the race and there's a Republican in the race. And she has described herself as an independent. And um, last time I saw her ask that question, she her answer was, um, oh, I'm so busy working on this border legislation. I just I don't have time to think about that. Really? Really? She's so busy working on a piece of legislation, she can't decide what her political future looks like, whether or not she's going to try to keep her job. That's just, that is unbelievable. A woman who thought she could have it all and is going to end up with nothing, at least politically. And, you know, who knows if if any of her corporate owners or for corporate overlords are going to, you know, hire her to lobby or something on their behalf. I don't know. Wouldn't it be poetic justice if they all abandoned her? Oh, I'm sorry, you're not of any use to us anymore. You can't sway legislation on our behalf anymore. And because of your flippy floppy state, nobody wants to listen to you. So you wouldn't be a very effective lobbyist. So, yeah, thanks for everything you did for us. Uh, Go away now. So um, CNN is reporting breaking news right now that um, shots have been fired at the Kansas City Super Bowl parade. They are... um, Providing people with some, the shots apparently are not being fired as we speak, but were fired. You see people kind of just leaving the city streets and um, police standing around. Um, There's very little information at this point. As more information becomes available, I'll share it with you, but there's no word of like anything like anybody injured just that they heard shots being fired at the Kansas City Super Bowl parade. But we can't um we can't restrict anybody's access to weapons. No matter how many mental health incidents they have. Nope. Oh, and eighteen year olds, they should get guns too, because they're so mature. Anyway, I digress. Let's go back to the good news. Tom Swosey. The newest member of Congress bringing another Democrat to the fold. Good for us. However, it didn't happen soon enough to slow down the impeachment of um, Alejandro Mayorkas, um, an impeachment vote that went strictly along party lines. And um, the Senate is um, most unlikely to unseat him. There were a lot of senators who felt 
that the impeachment of Mayorkas was a very unwise political stunt because it's clearly being done because people don't like the fact that he is carrying out the Joe Biden agenda. He hasn't committed high crimes and misdemeanors. He's not accused of bribing someone or raping someone. No, that would be Donald Trump, their fearless leader. Um, they don't like the policies that the DHS has in place. So let's impeach the head of the DHS. Why? Um, because we can? Uh, okay. Is that... And the Republicans will try to tell you that this is politics as usual, but we have to remember this is not normal. What we are seeing now from the Republican Party is not normal, and it is not the world we want to live in, and we damn well better do something to change it, because they are incapable of taking a different path themselves. They've shown that time and time and time again, that they are afraid Well, of course they're afraid. Look what happened to Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney. They don't want that. It's a sweet gig being in Congress. Are you kidding me? You get to feel important. And as long as you don't anger Donald Trump, you can keep your job, right? doesn't matter if other people get hurt. All that matters is that you keep your job. Tom Swosey... um, had a message for Republicans in his acceptance speech. Uh, Let's listen to that. But the people of Long Island and Queens are sick and tired of the political bickering. They've had it. They want us to come together and solve problems. So now we have to carry the message of this campaign to the United States Congress and across our entire country. It's time... It's time to move beyond the petty partisan bickering and the finger pointing. It's time to focus on how to solve the problems. It's time to get to work on immigration, on Israel, on combating Putin, on helping the middle class, and on getting the state and local tax deduction back. Let's send a message to our friends running the Congress these days. Stop running around for Trump and start running the country. It's time to find common ground and start delivering for the people of the United States of America. The people are watching. They want us to start working together. So our message is very clear. Either get on board or get out of the way. Sounds like a plan to me. Also, I want to clarify what I said. When I said that Mayorkas was impeached uh, with a party line vote, I meant that there were no um, Democratic votes for impeachment. The three Republicans who opposed his Impeachment voted against it, but everybody who voted for his impeachment 
was a Republican. And the reason that it was able to pass by that one vote majority is because Steve Scalise wasn't there for the first vote. Steve Scalise was um, he's been undergoing cancer treatment and he missed the first vote. But because they thought that the Democrats were also down one, they didn't think it mattered. Uh, Texas Congressman Al Green had had some surgery and they didn't think he would be in the chambers. But he showed up and that's why they um, the first vote ended in a tie, which basically was a loss. So uh, they got Steve Scalise to show up and they had that one vote necessary for this impeachment. Um, what you heard um, Mr. Swosey say in his acceptance speech, I think should be the theme for 2024. There's more of us than there are of them, and we have to do something. Each and every one of us, we have to do something to make sure our democracy continues, to make sure our democracy is strong, and I cannot think of a single better way of doing that than taking back the House keeping the presidency and cross our fingers, keeping the Senate as well. Can you imagine what we could get done if we didn't have to deal with the far-right extremists? I mean, Republicans don't even expect to get anything done because they know the far-right members of their Congress are enough. They're not enough to get legislation passed on their own, but they're enough to bring pretty much anything down. Simon Rosenberg was on um, Lawrence O'Donnell again last night. He is uh, somebody who really analyzes what is going on in our political life. And he was with Lawrence O'Donnell, and they listened to that Tom Swosey victory speech um, that we were just talking about. Swosey was ten was ten points ahead of his Republican opponent, um, at least at the moment that they were talking. Um, I think the that was ten points when when. Simon Rosenberg said that Swosey was 10 points ahead. Um, the final tally dropped down to an eight-point victory. Um, and he had some really insightful things to say about this particular contest and the bigger picture, the bigger picture of where we are now as a country. It's really interesting. Listen to this. I mean, look, the, the basic dynamic of this election, the basic where we are, is that Joe Biden is a good president. The country is far better off today. The Democratic Party is strong in winning elections all across the country. And they have Trump, who's the most unfit guy to run for president in all of American history. And we should be very optimistic about that. And what we heard tonight was we litigated some of the tough issues. You know, this was an election that was hard fought where Republicans... You know, continue to make tough arguments against the Democrats that we've been told by many people would take us out and be debilitating and that we weren't going to be able to overcome. And here's Swazi tonight winning in a district that we lost by eight points now by, you know, over 10 points. It's an enormous victory. Point two is that the Republicans in the House have to recognize that what they're doing is they're running towards a failed politics right now. Everything they've done in the last few weeks, they're running faster and faster, harder and harder into MAGA. 
MAGA's a failed politics. It lost in 2018, it lost in 2020, it lost in 2023, 22, lost in 2023, and it's losing now again in 2024. The Speaker is blowing it, and he's making huge mistakes, not just for the country, but for his party. And then finally, something that Tom said that I think is really important for everyone to hear tonight is that we're just hungrier than they are. We're fighting harder than they are. We made two million calls, as he said. We had hundreds of thousands of door knocks, hundreds of thousands of texts, hundreds of thousands of postcards, tens of thousands of people from all over the country participated and contributed to this victory. Because what's happening in the Democratic Party is we're building the biggest political machine we've ever had. Because there are millions of people who are getting up every day and deciding that they're just not going to let their democracy slip away on their watch. And they're going to work. They're rolling up their sleeves, doing the postcards, making the calls, doing the texts. And we're kicking their ass all over the country again and again and again. And it's because of the people of our party who have decided that they're going to make sure that their democracies and freedoms don't slip away. And so big hats off to all of them tonight because this was their win, too, in addition to Tom and the House Democrats. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't he? And I agree with him. I agree with him. We are. Look at the look at the states, the red states that are passing state constitution amendments to protect a woman's right to autonomy over her own body. This, you know, I've I've talked to experts who say that the only thing that's going to loosen up this whole grip that Trump and MAGA's have on the Republican Party is for them to face a drubbing at the polls. Most of the people I talk to about that say, well, you know, it's something that'll probably happen in the future, but I think it can happen. I think Republicans have gone so far, so far to the right, shown an absolute inability to get anything done or to govern. I think that they are speeding up the timetable and that we could potentially see something of a major consequence at the polls this this November 5th. Um, but I don't think we can be complacent. There is reporting um, by an organization that follows how people report on things, Mediaite, and they are reporting um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s campaign is in chaos right now, that apparently... Um, at least 14 campaign workers have resigned since January 1st. Uh, they're accusing the campaign of being extremely poorly run, and they are saying that the leaders of the campaign are siphoning off a lot of money to um, live a lavish lifestyle. Apparently, one of the campaign leaders is... Uh, Amaryllis Fox Kennedy, RFK Jr.'s daughter-in-law, which I suppose, you know, it's from the Trump model, put your family in positions of power. But she had to hire, Fox Kennedy had to hire a chief of staff. She hired her nanny. She hired her nanny. One of the campaign workers said that, you know, the nanny's a nice young woman, but she has no idea how to operate in this role. And she's inexperienced. And they're saying this is merely one red flag that indicates incompetence. Things that people are saying, things like the campaign is not run professionally. It's not being run like a business. And uh, one of the leaders of the campaign has, has been quoted as saying, we're like rock stars. 
So um, the reason I'm talking about this is because I think that in a flat-out head-to-head matchup, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Biden, Biden wins. Biden wins, Biden wins, Biden wins. The only thing that worries me is the ability of third-party candidates to to draw a siphon off votes. Now, a lot of people say RFK Jr. is more likely to steal votes from Trump than Biden. I'm not so sure I buy that. And I think we can't be complacent. No labels, RFK Jr. These are things to be concerned about. Remember when Al Gore ran against George Bush and everybody was trying to get Ralph Nader, Green Party candidate, to drop out of the race and he refused? A lot of people speculate that if Nader had dropped out and thrown his support behind Al Gore, that we would have had President Al Gore and not President George Bush. Ego. Oh, my God. The ego of somebody like this. And if Joe Manchin convinces himself that um, he can be a presidential candidate with the backing of no labels. I, I you know, I don't like Joe Manchin. I, uh, I think that there's a lot to be concerned about with his character. But I don't think he's stupid. And I don't think he wants to be remembered as a spoiler. I don't think Joe Manchin wants to be remembered as the guy that got Trump back in the White House. So I am hoping and I am praying that Joe Manchin wakes up and smells the coffee. He keeps saying, you know, he hasn't said he's going to be their candidate. He keeps saying that he is going to just keep talking to people and, you know, studying the issues. Good, Joe. You keep you keep doing that. And then we will see how this all shakes out. Um, By the way, uh, CNN, which, you know, I've been trying to find more information on this. um, But so far, all we know about the Super Bowl parade in Kansas City is that um, shots have been fired And I don't know the extent of the injuries, but police are saying there have been multiple injuries. I guess we should have expected it. Is this going to is this what's going to happen every time people get together now? Um, You know, I will continue to monitor this. But like I said, all of my normal sources of breaking news are... um, not really giving me any more information. Um, CBS News is reporting that two suspects have been detained in this in this shooting, um, but that several people have been shot in downtown Kansas City, uh, where everyone had gathered for a Super Bowl victory celebration parade. I'm not seeing I'm not seeing um, 
a report on whether there have been just wounding or death in this shooting. Uh, obviously, this is something I'm going to keep an eye on. And um, we'll bring you more information as we have it. Until then, we will go back to our regular programming after this break. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I am very pleased to uh, welcome back to our airwaves one of my favorite contributors to Washington Monthly Magazine. His name is Garrett Epps. And he is an expert when it comes to the law and um, especially an, an eagle-eyed observer of the Supreme Court. Garrett, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. I'm very pleased that you're back. Um, obviously, uh, we may have to keep an eye on what's happening in Kansas City. I don't know if, if you uh, were able to hear me, but apparently at the Super Bowl parade in Kansas City today, shots have been fired and um, multiple people have been shot. Uh, it's, it's, it's a story that's literally breaking as we speak, and supposedly two suspects are in custody. Um, and, you know, Garrett, it seems like, you know, any time there are uh, there's a large gathering of people. We are we're going to have to be prepared for this to happen, you know. And I'm I, how how long do you think Garrett it'll take before we start hearing the thoughts and prayers comments from our legislators? Huh? Well, the first thing the first thing you're going to say is we must not politicize this tragedy. Oh you know? yes, that's right. Let's, this and it isn't uh, it isn't the guns. It's it it's the people and it's the right. it's the mental health issues. Well, you know, we've already established with some of our more recent mass shootings that apparently having severe mental health problems, being under treatment, having been previously hospitalized, none of those are stumbling blocks in your effort to buy a gun. Uh, you know, the, the, this country is awash in firearms. Uh, anybody who wants one can get one. Uh, there's not really much serious effort in most places to monitor or block this, and uh, there seems to be very little political will uh, for that to change, at least in the near term. I, I agree with you. I don't, I don't understand how the legislators that oppose um, even an assault weapon ban, and I don't know that whoever was shooting today, I don't know what was the cause of the shooting, whether it was a fight that went awry, whether it was an actual attack on the parade. I don't know what kind of weapons were used. I do know that um, two people have been taken into custody and multiple people have been shot. So we don't have any more information right now than that. But, Garrett, how do people keep keep voting for people who don't want to do anything about this. Do we have to wait until every single family in America has lost someone to gun violence? Because that seems to turn the tide. You know, even the, the more conservative legislators, when when it really hits home, there was I can't remember one of the mass shootings that took place in some relatively small town. 
the mayor of that town had been a real pro-gun person. And now he's like, you know what? I was wrong. I was wrong. And yeah, I see the error of my ways. Does that does is that what it takes? That we have to have a well, personal. If only that were enough, you know, I think we've we've seen this happen to people. And when it happens to them, they they perceive it. But the overall structure remains in place, which has to do with campaign finance and the the power of organizations like the National Rifle Association. And underlying that, you know, to be honest, is a, a commitment by a large percentage of our population to a certain kind of authoritarian society in which people carry weapons in, in order to uh, enforce, you know, their personal autonomy. Uh, until we get some real change other than, you know, simply a grudging acceptance that, well, yeah, that was bad. Uh, I, I don't know what's going to happen. We have, it, there's too much money behind it, too much ideology behind it. Uh, we would have to, the, the country would have to do a 180 almost before we could really seriously tackle this issue. And that's why we always end up talking about mental health or, or praying, um, it's, it's enormously discouraging, and it is setting us apart from the rest of the what we call the developed world. And I think the rest of the world looks at a country where mass shootings have become a routine part of life, and, and they're just utterly flabbergasted. Yeah. It's, it's terrifying. I remember once, um, and this was quite a while ago, my daughter was going to be uh, traveling um, with a girlfriend, and they were going to be going to visit a, a friend of mine who was living in Paris. And somebody said to me, oh, my God, aren't you worried about her? And I looked at them and I said, tell me where tell me where it's safe. I'm sorry. Tell me where it's safe. Um, and I'll, that's where I'll send her instead. But, you know, I mean, Uvalde, Texas, for God's sake, I never knew there was such a town. And I didn't certainly didn't know that Matthew McConaughey had been born there. I mean, you know, you tell me where it's safe, Garrett. Well, you know, safety is, uh, you know, from from my point of view, what's fascinating to me is that our court system and, and our Supreme Court has basically explicitly taken the view in recent years that safety is not their concern, that that the survival of the population is not their concern. And we have now uh, a series of decisions by the court about gun rights that basically explicitly say uh, we are not going to concern ourselves with the results of these policies. All we are going to do is uh, apply an abstract rule uh, that we have come up with about what the phrase keep and bear arms means, and that's it. Uh, so, we're, I mean, it's not only is the situation not getting better, it's continuing to get worse. It is going to get worse. And I um, yeah. I hope the Republican Party implodes before they take down the country, because I'm just an optimist that way. And speaking of being an optimist, um, Adam Shapiro, who helped uh, me get uh, this uh, interview negotiated with Garrett, in, in the note he sent me, he quoted this sentence from your recent article where you're talking about the Colorado case where they wanted to kick Trump off the ballot and, you know, the Supreme Court heard arguments. 
Apparently, you wrote, fondly, may we hope, and fervently, may we pray that this morally compromised, crudely packed partisan assembly of jurists will take their responsibility seriously and offer a principled and careful resolution to what may be the most crucial question the institution has ever resolved. Garrett, you are a guy, you are a glass three quarters full guy. If uh, if you think that you are going to get a serious and principled resolution to this issue from the current SCOTUS, we, did you write that satirically? <laughs> well, you know, I like it because I think uh, there's an old Barbadian proverb, Joan, that goes, live in hope, though you die in despair. <laughs> and we, we have to hope we have to keep going as long as there's any possibility that we can turn the ship around. Um, and, you know, at least theoretically, it's possible that some of the justices might rethink their approach uh, to, to these questions and might actually begin to care what happens to the country. Now, what's fascinating to me is that in the argument that finally happened in relation to that case, the Trump, whether Trump is an insurgent or not, the court's argument was mostly put in terms of itself. You know, what's good for us to decide and, and mm-hmm. what will keep us out of the, the line of fire uh, rather than what does the Constitution say and how do we safeguard what remains of our democratic system? The, the court has largely abandoned that role. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that is the best way to try to understand what this court has done and what it will continue to do. Don't look at the Constitution. Don't look at the aftermath of any of these rulings. What is best for the Supreme Court? And I think that's why not only am I going to predict that they uh, say that Colorado was wrong and nobody can kick Trump off the ballot. I also think this is going to that attitude that you just talked about. What is best for them? I think it's going to affect how they rule on Trump's plea uh, to be granted immunity, because right now he's asking them the way the D.C. District Court of Appeals, they refused Trump's claim of immunity. And they said because it was a three judge panel, if he wants to have this reheard by the entire full court of appeals he can do that but we're going to let the judge continue her prosecution we're not going to we're not going to hold up the prosecution while that process plays out and he went to the supreme court and he said his lawyer said that's not fair that's not fair i uh, the prosecution while i'm going through the entire legal system and and exhausting every alternative i have this whole um prosecution against me should be on hold And in what is in the best interest of the Supreme Court, they already know that they're considered partisan hacks by a lot of people. I think that they are going to stall. And I think what that looks like is them granting Trump's request that there be no hold so he can do his little dance with the full court of appeals. And then I think they are going to stall, stall, stall till after the election. Do you think I am being too cynical? And maybe there's a legal um, ordinance or a legal policy that I don't know about that would prevent this from happening. Educate me, Garrett. Well, I, I think the court can do 
within limits pretty much anything it wants with this case. And uh, I think that the instinct that the court majority will probably have is what gets us out of the line of fire. And, uh, you know, to some extent, you could say, well, in that case, just, you know, deny the application and say, you know, this is what most criminal defendants, you know, criminal defendants. I mean, uh, Trump has filed this this uh, pitiful appeal like this is so hard on me. I'm wanting to run for president. And these mean people are, are wanting to try me for for crimes of which I've been duly uh, indicted. Uh, and that's not fair. And basically the argument, which has grown over the stages of this litigation, is that the president has to be completely above the law or he can't be president. I mean, what's the point of holding the office if you have to follow the law? <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, 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 the court, I think, I don't think the court wants to say, oh, that's absolutely right. But I do think they want to get they want to duck. They want to get out of it. Duck and um, cover. And yeah. And that if that's the case, then the, the right thing to do is grant uh, cert and schedule it for the next term of court and basically hope that by that time uh, the whole thing will be moot. Uh, if that happens, that means that the trial will be delayed. It may not you know, we may not it may not take place at all. And in practical terms, it will mean that the president is above the law. Uh, we, most criminal defendant, you know, I could, if I were indicted tomorrow for some offense against the United States, and I went to the court and said, you know, this is really inconvenient for me. <laughs> I have my vacation planned, you know, and then I've got some professional duties I have to do, and this trial is just going to mess me up real bad. Could I just be immune? The answer will be a laugh, to laugh. Criminal, you know, criminal defendants are supposed to stand trial. That's yeah. what happens. They would chortle as you were being let, let off to the pokey. Right. But now, but for presidents uh, or Trump, at any rate, apparently, uh, doesn't have to fulfill. If it's inconvenient for him to to be tried, if it if it interferes with his plans, well, then certainly we don't want this this fine man to have his life complicated by the mere fact of accusations of crime. It, 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 the, the spectacle has been extremely unedifying, and I would like to hope that the court would just speak up and say what the district, the, the D.C., the circuit court for the District of Columbia said, which is presidents aren't kings. Presidents are not above the law. Uh, you know, if they are duly indicted and no longer in office, there's just no question that a president could be tried for crimes. But that may be too much to hope for. So if I understand the process, um, they have heard the Colorado case, uh, the Colorado yeah. case that said um, we think he's an insurrectionist and the 14th Amendment allows us to keep him from the ballot. Um, that's they're deciding they have heard that case and we are awaiting their decision. Now, it is if. It's a little bit different process for Trump's lawyers saying, well, the D.C. Court of Appeals isn't being fair to us and the, the mm -hmm. trial. Uh, we should be allowed to appeal to the full body and we shouldn't have to go back to the trial until then. Is that something that we can expect a quick decision on? It uh, doesn't have to be deliberated. They don't have to hear arguments, right? Like a like a normal case they hear. Right. Is that correct? 
That that's right, and it's my understanding that they have ordered the special counsel to file his reply, uh, reply by February twentieth. So uh, they're not likely to decide before then. Uh, it is entirely possible that they would, you know, make that decision promptly after uh, this, the uh, special counsel uh, files his reply. And then the only question is going to be, do they grant cert and just take the case now and put it on their docket, in which case it's delayed at least probably until next fall, unless they, they take some uh, urgent steps, um, or do they just refuse it and let the case go back to trial in the district court? I wish I, I wish I thought that the principle that powerful people are not above the law was one that commanded uh, a lot of allegiance on this court. But I think if you look at their jurisprudence for the past 20 years, the thing that most horrifies these justices is the idea that rich people or powerful people or powerful private institutions can be held to account. That must not happen. The law is for little people. And mm-hmm. I think we're going to see how far they're willing to go with that uh, principle, if that's the word, by what happens after February 20th. Uh, you used the phrase grant cert. What does that mean, Garrett? Well, uh, when the court, it's, it's called the writ of certiorari. And, and what that means is, that the court says, we are going to take this case, and we call on the lower court to give us the record. We are, we are now in charge of the case. The case will be argued and decided by us, the United States Supreme Court, at a schedule of our choosing. Uh, that's the way most cases reach the court at the present time. Uh, the court has real discretion over which cases to take and which not to take. And it could just simply say... We are treating this application, right? The application we have in front of the court right now is simply the application for a stay. They could say we are treating this application as a, a petition for certiorari, which they do sometimes, and we are accepting it, and we will now hear the case. Uh, they could also simply say we're granting the stay, and you can apply for a writ of certiorari down the road. That makes things even slower. Or they could say no stay. Um, you know, the, the court needs, the case needs to be heard in the lower courts before it reaches us, which is the usual process with a uh-huh. criminal case. You know, if you or I are prosecuted for a crime and we are saying it's no fair for us to be prosecuted, the Supreme Court will say to us, look, go to trial. If you're convicted, you've got a problem. Come back and we'll take a look at it. But not until then, you have to go to trial. This is a new rule that is being created for uh, former presidents, or as the uh, the, the application trial, uh, Trump's application in front of the court says, basically he is President Trump. They're they're basically taking the position that he's uh, without quite saying so that he's still president, uh, and that it would just be too terrible for the president uh, to be hauled into court and obstructed in his uh, important duty of getting himself installed as president again. Is this grant cert, is that what Jack Smith and his prosecutors did a while back when they, well, they wanted the Supreme called, Court? What? Yeah, they asked for what was called certiorari before judgment. They, they said, please, this case is so important and speed is so important. But now that it has been decided in the district court, that is Judge Chutkin's court, please skip the Court of Appeals 
and take the case now and decide it so that we can either go ahead with this trial or forget the whole thing. And the court refused to do that. The court basically said, we, you know, what, what are you looking at us for? We don't want to get involved. Go to the Court of Appeals. So they, the, uh, they did that. The special counsel went to the Court of Appeals. The, Trump went to the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals decided, yes, you can be tried. You are like any other citizen. The fact that you once were president doesn't mean that you carry some special, you know, above the law status for the rest of your life. Um, and then now Trump is once again hoping the Supreme Court will step in and say, no, no, former presidents are above the law, and particularly President Trump, bless his heart, and, and we are not going to make him suffer the way other citizens do through a trial just because he's been indicted for a crime. If they didn't want to short-circuit the process and bring about speedy justice then, why do you think that they, there's even a chance that they would take this case now? I mean, it seems to me that if we look at their track record here, that um, the obvious thing for them to do is say, oh, no, 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 this whole process needs to play out. If he wants to take it before the full court of appeals, then we're just... It, we're just going to sit back here and pray that somebody else fixes this before it gets to us. Is that what they're saying? Well, you know, that that could possibly happen. And I think that that strategically is, is not a bad uh, decision. If you are a member of the court and thinking what's best for me. Um, on the other hand, as I say, there is this background principle that has evolved uh, with the rise of the Rehnquist Court, and then even more so uh, with the rise of the Roberts Court, which is that the law doesn't actually exist to keep, to hold powerful people or powerful institutions uh, accountable. That's not what it's there for. It's there for um, for for little people. Um, you know, it's there for people who are uh, sentenced to death, and we're not going to we're going to allow them to be hustled right off to the death chamber. But we don't want uh, a powerful person like President, former President Trump to be held accountable. And if that's the case, if they, if they follow that impulse, then they will come up with a way to take the court, the case, in a way that will delay it until it really, in essence, becomes impossible uh, for the courts to, to fulfill their function. Uh, it's you know, the number of ways this thing could go off the rails is large. The number of ways it could go well is small, and, and I'm not optimistic. And, you know, as far as the Colorado case, um, apparently um, court watchers said that, you know, they sort of feel like you can get a sense of how the court's going to rule by listening to the questions they ask and the conversation they have with lawyers and amongst themselves. And the feeling seems to be that even the quote-unquote considered liberal justices were seemed skeptical of Colorado's arguments. I mean, I've seen so many constitutional lawyers on cable TV saying, you know, the Constitution's clear, and if, you know, if they can't see that this applies here and now, then nothing means anything. But we have a court that is very, very partisan. They've proven that over and over. Um, at least a certain number of them are apparently also very corrupt. Um, so I, I get the ivory tower argument that what the Constitution says or doesn't say. But talking a, 
as someone who not only sees the law, but has both feet on the ground and both eyes open. Do you think there's any chance this Supreme Court is going to say, oh, my God, Colorado, you're right. You're absolutely right. Thank you for bringing this to our attention. Um, you know, I, I, I have to say, it seems to me that the, the only real question leaving over this court is whether they rule in Trump's favor nine to nothing or eight to one or seven to two. I don't think there's any possibility that they're going to affirm the Colorado Supreme Court and say that this that uh, Trump needs to be kept off the ballot because he's an insurgent. And if you followed the questions, uh, the questions, again, were all basically sort of in institutional questions is like, oh, well, if, if we let Colorado do this, then Texas is going to come back and and they're going to say that Biden's an insurgent. And then what do we do then? This would be too terrible. Uh, you know, Steve Vladek, the, the constitutional scholar, pointed out recently in an article that that's what courts are for, right? In other words, for this court to take the view that there would be no difference between taking Trump off the ballot because he actually is an insurgent and taking Biden off the ballot because we don't like him, but how are we supposed to tell the difference? You know, who are we? Well, you're a court. That's what you do. You apply law to facts. I can tell you, you know, just from the outside, being on that court is a really good job. You, you have this cool office and everybody treats you nice. And what you're supposed to do in return for the salary is make legal decisions based on the law. And I think that the chance that this court will make a principled legal decision on the disqualification issue is virtually nil. It's just not going to happen. I think you are correct. And I hope that if we get a solid Democratic majority in the House and the Senate and a Democratic president going forward, that we figure out some way to right this ship, because I'm not willing to sit back and let this court be in power until they all croak. Um, I don't have that many years left, Garrett. I can't wait that long. <laughs> well, this court seems to be really determined to squander whatever goodwill uh, and credibility and prestige they have. They, uh, uh, you know, the majority of the at least the conservative majority of the court, basically their view is we're here now. We have the power. We're going to do what we want. And we don't really care. Mm -hmm. Burn yeah. it all down. Yeah. And yeah. It's a very scary situation. I don't know of a, anything like it in our in our recent history. Yeah. Garrett, uh, thank you for uh, joining us. You can read Garrett's writing in Washington Monthly. Washington Monthly. Um, you can get it digitally or digitally and um, um, a paper copy. And I often talk to people who write for Washington Monthly. I think it is a terrific publication. And Garrett, just before we wrap up, uh, one of the local reporters in Kansas, a reporter for KSHB 41 News, is now saying of the 10 injured in this shooting at the Kansas City Super Bowl parade, uh, they are reporting one dead, nine injured, two suspects or two uh, let's two armed persons have been taken into into custody. <sighs> Sorry to have to share some of the time, Garrett, that I wanted to talk about the law with um, another major mass shooting. But thank you for joining me and sticking with me through all of this. It's it's always fun. Anytime, anytime. Thanks, Garrett. Um, I'm going to take a break now.
We are going to be back after the news and um, CNN is reporting that five people are in the hospital. So the local news is reporting one dead, nine injured in the shooting and CNN says five people in the hospital. So we will continue to follow this story as it develops back after this. Joan Esposito, live, celebrating our power to bring about change, local, everybody has to work together, and progressive. I think you get the idea. On WCPT 820. Joining me is Laura Rodriguez, who's the Vice President of Government Affairs at the Center for American Progress. Laura, how are you today? Hi, Joan. Great to be back. Good to have you back. Uh, let's start with the good political news of the day. Tom Swosey returning to Congress uh, from yeah. the district that um, somehow elected George Santos last time around and seems to have um, regained its sanity. I want to ask you about that. Apparently, there was a CNN reporter on the scene that night. I don't know if she was at Swosey election headquarters. I think she or at a polling place. But she said that she was talking to Republican voters, some of whom switched parties to vote for Swosey because and the reason they gave her is because it appears to them that Republicans are incapable of governing which I thought was uh, very interesting. It wasn't just, oh, we don't like the opponent, or we're embarrassed for Santos, but they they look at what they see. Oh, you know, border funding. Oh, no border funding, funding for Ukraine. No, no funding for Ukraine. And they ca- apparently some of them have come to the conclusion that you cannot count on Republicans to get anything done. What do you think of Swozy's victory? Well, Joan, it's, it's exactly what you're talking about. And, and really, it, it was, I mean, we all had a hope that this kind of message was breaking through, um, that the Republican majority in the House is incapable govern, of governing. And it's been, I think, a, a theme in every single conversation we've had. Every time that we talk, they've got some scheme that just does not pan out. Um, Speaker Johnson cannot control his caucus. He is not a leader. He hasn't shown any leadership at all in the House. And so it's complete chaos in the House. What we were nervous about a little bit, um, what I was nervous about a little bit, is, you know, that that message wasn't breaking through. But what we saw last night in New York's third district is exactly that. Um, And let's not forget, Tom Swazi was the representative there before. He left the seat to run for governor. So people knew him a little bit better. But this narrative that um, Democrats don't care about the border, that Democrats are, you know, letting, you know, immig- uh, criminals in uh, and the southern border and all this stuff, that was the scare tactics that were being brought by the Miss um, Phillips campaign simply didn't work. Um, and people saw right through it. Right. They, they saw, OK, fine. Yes, the border is an issue. We are, we can all agree with that. This is a problem that we should all be looking at. But the only people sitting at the table willing to come at, and meet the other party halfway are the Democrats. Those are the only adults in the room. Yeah. And that is clearly breaking through. And not just in New York, but we saw it in the Pennsylvania state legislature today and last night as well. Oh, talk about that a little bit. So. 
that was another uh, win. It was a little quieter. Everyone was nationally watching Tom Swazi to see if that was a, a, a harbinger for things to come. But in the Pennsylvania House, uh, a Bucks County state legislator's seat had come open, and there was a special election last night for it, and the Democrat won, meaning that the House retains its one-seat majority there. As we know, you know, Pennsylvania is very much a split, you know, very mm-hmm. purple state. But uh, they retained that. And again, I think that this message of the Republican Party of today is just incapable of governing. They're not uh, they're not uh, good negotiators. They're they're not they're not adults. Mm -hmm. Someone was um, writing about this um, effort by Mike Johnson to lead the charge to kill all of this uh, border, mm-hmm. uh, the border bill, the negotiation, um, because it was what Donald uh, Trump wanted. And someone wrote, you know, um, that it was bad for the didn't didn't he understand the ramifications and how it was bad for the party, which might be what we saw in Pennsylvania, might possibly have been a factor uh, in what we saw in New York. But I think Mike Johnson isn't looking to the big picture. I don't think Mike Johnson is saying, well, you know, I I better be careful what I do because in 2024, you know, we might lose some seats. I think Mike Johnson is in a panic right here, right now to just do whatever makes Donald Trump happy and keeps the peace, even if it means down the road we pay a price, even if it means it looks like I'm giving control of the Congress to the to the far right. I don't think he cares about the big picture. Do you have any sense that he does? No. And and sadly, what's become really evident uh to the folks here in D.C. is that he's very much flying by the seat of his pants. He doesn't seem to have a plan <laughs> for anything. Um, he consistently, if this is the right way to say it, consistently changes his mind. <laughs> so he, he's a big flip-flopper on a lot of things. He'll say one thing and then go the other direction. Um, and not only is he not thinking big picture for um 2024 and for the party, which is obviously this is this is a problem for the party, for his own caucus. He, they just don't care about the American people at this point. It's the American people want something to be done. They want the government to work the way it's supposed to, to get things accomplished. And they are not even pretending to try anymore. They're simply blowing it all up in the name of Trump. And it is, it's quite evident that it's not about the country at all. It's about whatever Trump wants. Yeah. Um, the, the, the other piece to that is the, the fact that there's no, you know, when you, when you start talking about, you know, Mitch McConnell being the, the, the voice of reason and, you know, you know, you've got a problem. Yeah, I know. It's um, it's really terrifying. And just so we're clear, you know, there was going to be this aid package for Israel, Ukraine and the Indo-Pacific region, which means Taiwan. And Mike Johnson sat up and said, no, no, no. Unless there's border reform and border money, we're not going to do it. So they sat down and um, negotiated a border 
aspect to this package. And uh, then Donald Trump reached out and said, well, no, I don't want Joe Biden to look like he's doing anything. Vote against this. And just today I saw Mike Johnson and it just it just I didn't know whether to laugh or to cry. I saw Mike Johnson say, we can't vote on this aid package. It doesn't include anything for the border. We said that that was a non-starter, that there had to be measures for the border. And somebody, one of the reporters was like, uh, yeah, but you guys killed that. Oh, no, that was that's because that was because those were bad measures. We want good measures. You know, we want um, we want effective measures. And 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 it was like. Is he's yeah. tap dancing as fast as he can. And I oh. thought to myself, you know, what do you what do you see when you when you look in the mirror at night? Are you like, yeah, Mike, you're doing a great job. You're I mean, it's it's exactly like you said. There's no long range thought. He's <laughs> reacting in the moment and praying that um, that, you know, he's not going to look as much like a fool as he sounds like. Yeah, he the, yeah, but you've got the sequence correct, right? They said no, no funding for Ukraine unless we have border security. Then it, from I think it was late October, or maybe November, all the way to February um, or late January, they sat down, they hammered it out in the Senate. And this is why you see Senator Chris Murphy out there so angry and rightly so. And Kristen Cinema, they're out there saying, like, we negotiated in good faith. We sat at the table. They basically gave Republicans everything they wanted on the Senate side. And just to you know, broaden the picture a little bit here, this is not this is not the bill that Democrats would have written or yeah. progressives would have written. It had a lot of problematic border security things that were not were not you know folks' favorite. But in a democracy, you negotiate, you you meet in the middle, and you get stuff done. For the American people, that is how this is supposed to work. So that's what the Senate did. So you can understand why I think they're calling it the um, tour, the rage tour that Chris Murphy's on, the Senator Murphy's on, because, you know, he's out there and he's getting that message through. And I think it's important because I do think it's breaking through, as we saw in New York last night. These people are not good faith negotiators. They don't have any interest in governing all they want to do is use this as a political tool, and voters are not dumb. They understand what exactly what's happening. Not to mention that they're not hiding from it. They're, mm-hmm. they're just telling people this is what they're doing. Well, you and I both know that, you know, there are oftentimes, Laura, behind-the-scenes negotiations, you know, oh, you know, you do this, don't, don't do that, or, oh, my God, we got we to gotta pivot here, but... But the stuff that's usually behind the scenes is taking place out where we can all see it. We all know there were Republican senators who said they got phone calls from Donald Trump telling them not to vote for this, telling them not to do anything that would potentially give Joe Biden a victory. The behind the scenes negotiating and arm twisting took place where everybody could see it. And I think that I think it would have been a much smarter course of action 
for Donald Trump. Maybe he thought nobody would maybe maybe he thought nobody would rat him out. But, you know, if 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 he'd have just shut up and let this pass, you know, he could have, I'm sure, found something to complain about. Oh, it didn't go far enough. Oh, look at this Mm -hmm. measure. It's Mm -hmm. you know, it's all just a lie. Instead, this thing that he thought he could use as a campaign issue is blowing up in his face. Do you think he thought that that nobody would see his fingerprints on this? No, I think he doesn't care because his supporters don't care. His supporters are not leaving him. It's all about him, right? It, it might be bad for the brand. It might be bad for the party. It might be bad for the Senate. It might be bad for the House. It does not matter to him. He wants to use this as, as a political tool, and that is the only thing that mattered to him. He definitely is not playing uh, 3D chess here. Uh, And I think, you know, surprisingly, Mitch McConnell, who's usually a pretty smart man, not, not, you know, he doesn't take a lot of positions that I agree with, but he knows how to maneuver things and how to make things look a way that, you know, makes him seem reasonable. It was Mm -hmm. very shocking to me, and I'm going to get into a little bit of Senate procedure here, so hopefully it won't be too boring, but it was very shocking to me. That when the text of this bill came out of the, the the supplemental plus border security, that they didn't allow it to be debated. Okay, because here's here's what you you would think would happen from from a Mitch McConnell perspective. You say, okay, guys, let's vote for cloture so that we open debate. We're gonna propose a bunch of amendments, poison pills that they're never gonna take. And then that's why we won't be able to vote for it in the end, right? You at least look like you're doing something. You look like you're trying to pass something, but maybe it wasn't like, it, it didn't, you know, as you said, didn't go far enough. They could have done that. And they might have gotten away with looking like they were trying to get something done or trying to, you know, pass something, but then it just didn't work because, you know, it didn't go far enough. Mm-hmm. They could have gotten away with that, but they didn't. They just said no. They just didn't even allow it to be debated. And that was that was a tactical error, a very big tactical error. And why you see now uh, all the pressure being put on Mike Johnson for this new package with just uh, the supplemental. And um, we can talk a little bit about the future of that or what it looks like, but um, it's, it's looking tough. Yeah, and I we need to take a, a break, Laura. But I also when we come back, um, I wonder if it was a tactical error or if Mitch McConnell is just had it up to here with Donald Trump and didn't mind if this whole thing embarrassed him. I'm talking to Laura Rodriguez, Vice President of Government Affairs at the Center for American Progress. We're going to be right back after a quick break. Hey Google, play WCPT. Streaming Chicago's Progressive Talk from TuneIn. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Laura Rodriguez, who's the Vice President of Government Affairs at the Center for American Progress. We have been talking about the um, the aid package that had a border um, component and then it didn't. And Laura made the point that the Senate really could have given some cover 
for this idea that, yeah, we negotiated this, but we don't want it anymore by opening up debate, in which case they could have maybe poked holes in some of the provisions of the bill. But they didn't do that. They voted it. They sent it to the House. And uh, now it is a, a crushing pressure over there for Speaker Mike Johnson. I don't know, Laura, if that was Mitch McConnell. Isn't, I'm no fan of his either, but the one thing the guy knows is power and strategy, and he knows all of the procedures inside and out. And I find it hard to believe that he had an opportunity to provide cover for those who are terrified of Trump and want to vote down the very things that the Republicans asked for. I'm wondering if he did it on purpose. I mean, supposedly he still hasn't talked to Donald Trump and uh, since the uh, since he no longer had to, there is no love lost there. And I'm wondering if he hasn't maybe just reached his threshold. Well, I think you make a good point and it's certainly a possibility. Uh, But he is such a Senate guy. He's such he, he very much protects the Senate. He reveres the institution and and the party. And so my initial thought is, I think it was an error, but you might be right. Um, because it is, to your point, it is, it is a big backlash um, on Trump and others. But not with, to, your point, uh, to the point that I was making before, it, it's not a backlash on Trump supporters, right? They're never leaving him. They're going to stay with him till the end. But for folks that are in the middle and who maybe voted for him in uh, 2016 because they thought, eh, this guy's going to have, you know, he's he's just, you know, he's all, you know, talk and he's going to have smart people around him and he'll, you know, he'll he'll be fine. Um, let's see what he's got, you know, what, what he can do. Uh, those folks who then turned around in 2020 and said, no, thanks. Um those are the folks that are continue to be turned off and turned away with stunts like this. So you might be right that, you know, Mitch McConnell could have, been, could have absolutely been playing for each chess and saying, you know, we're going we're gonna to put this right at Trump's feet um, and, let, and let, it, let it ride um, see what happens. The other thing, um, before we completely walk away from Mitch McConnell, I've been hearing rumblings that his grip on power, his grip on the Senate might be a little less strong than it's been in the past. I mean, Ted Cruz obviously was one of the people who said last time around, it's time for a change. Let's find somebody other than Mitch. So when Cruz was asked about whether or not Mitch Mitch's, you know, hold on power was slipping, he was like, yeah, you know, because but then he's like, but remember, I've always hated him. Um, So um, he's had a couple of very obvious health problems. A couple of times when he's been uh, talking to reporters, when he's frozen up for, you know, 20, 30 seconds. Do you think that. The other reason that I wonder if this wasn't just an I don't care anymore, if indeed his his grasp on power isn't what it once was, and if indeed he's reached the point in life where he's old and he's having health problems, is it possible 
that he will break from the Mitch McConnell we've seen in the past who cared about nothing but getting and retaining power. Is it possible we might see a different side of him going forward? Or is this just me having one of those Pollyanna dreams that I have (laughs) from time to time? (laughs) We we all have that dream. Um, (laughs) But I will say um, your, your first question about him losing kind of control of the caucus, this is the first time we've seen anything like this where part of the reason that it, there was even a negotiation on the border. Because let, let's be very clear. Mitch McConnell never wanted to complete the border with any of this stuff. Mitch McConnell's goal has always been from the beginning to get money to Ukraine. Yeah. He is, he is uh, a smart foreign policy operator. He understands the ramifications of the war in Ukraine for us and for our security. And there is no cheaper way to eat and or continue to hobble Vladimir Putin than to help the Ukrainians. And they're the ones doing the fighting. He gets all of that. And so that has always been his number one goal. And he couldn't get his caucus behind him on it. Mm-hmm. He couldn't get that to move. So already he was conceding by even saying, okay, fine, let's talk border. Like, if, if we got to do border, fine, let's do border. Um, and so that that's number one. And then when it took, it took so long for him to convince these folks uh, to, to get behind it. Mm-hmm. Again, it, he, it's never been that difficult for him. Uh, he's really, it does feel like he's maybe lost a little bit of a step there. Um, and can I just go back a little bit to, uh, 2020 and remind everyone that, or, yeah, 2021, actually, I guess when the second impeachment happened, no, yeah, sorry, 2021. I'm trying to remember which year. Look at that. I can't remember years either. Um, <laughs> When the second impeachment happened, and it was very clear that Donald Trump had, you know, uh, had led an insurrection, and they could have voted to convict him and stop him from ever running for president again. Had he been convicted in the Senate, yeah, we would be having these conversations. I know, they I know. Cut him off at the knees right then and there. Every off-ramp they've ever had, they've not taken. They've been too afraid to take. It's like they've been afraid to take the pain up front, so they continue to take the pain on a daily basis. And you're absolutely right. I mean, these could all be moot questions if they had. And supposedly, I we've got to take a break, and I know, Andy, I'll shut up in a minute. Um, I had been reading back then that Mitch McConnell was saying things to his colleagues like Donald Trump is a cancer and the Democrats have handed us an opportunity to cut this cancer out of our party. And then supposedly members came to him and were like, oh, but but he'll be mean to me and I'm running for reelection and I don't want to do it. And uh, Mitch McConnell capitulated. Laura Rodriguez and I will be right back when um, uh, we take a real quick break. 
Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. Want to give you a quick update on that shooting that took place today in Kansas City at the site of the Super Bowl parade. Uh, The Kansas City Fire Department is now saying that at least one person was shot to death and 14 have been injured in in that incident. That's um, the police are going to be giving an update in the very near future. But that's what we know right now. I'm speaking with Laura Rodriguez, who's the vice president of uh, government affairs at the Center for American Progress. And. um one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, Laura, was this uh, impeachment of Alejandro Mayorkas. Um, even mm. Senate Republicans spoke out against this and talked about how even they acknowledged that this was clearly political. It had nothing to do with high crimes or misdemeanors, that they didn't like Biden's policies, the policies Mayorkas was implementing. So let's impeach him um, when your own party takes you to task. What does that say? I mean, do you really think that they they scored a lot of points with this impeachment? No, no, they they look absolutely ridiculous. Again, you're going to talk about border policy and then impeach the man who's in charge of it and also not give him more resources, because that was part of what was in the negotiated package. But um, let's talk for a second, not just about Senate Republicans here, but House Republicans. Three House Republicans also said this is not an impeachable offense. These are policy disagreements. We don't agree with the way that they're doing it. There's nothing illegal mm-hmm. about the way that this is functioning. This is not what impeachment is for. And we're going down a bad road. We do this. It's a tit for tat, although I don't imagine Democrats doing that, but, you know, um, you never know. But the point is that they have now opened that door uh, and, and using it as a political tool. There's zero evidence, zero evidence of any wrongdoing, any any illegality, any misdemeanor, any crime, zero, absolutely zero. They couldn't point to anything. So it was a political stunt. I think everybody saw that. And by the way, it almost didn't work again. Had everyone been in attendance, it would have failed again, Joan. Going back to our original theme, Mike Johnson doesn't know what he's doing. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. They didn't have their whip count right again. They had no idea that Judy Chu was out with COVID. Had she been in, they would have lost again. You know, I'm kind of surprised that uh, they didn't have her show up uh, in a hazmat suit, if need be, uh, to, to vote uh, when they brought Representative <laughs> Green in wearing his hospital scrubs in a wheelchair to vote. I mean, you know, put her in a hazmat suit. She can still punch the button, right? <laughs> now, I will say it does feel like also that the the real news was made when they lost that vote, right? The first one where it went down. Uh, that's where it got the most attention, to be honest. I don't know that it's top news today. And quite frankly, here in Washington, it was kind of like fifth-tier news um, last night. There was so much else going on uh, because it was it was a stunt. And the Senate, because they, you know, it will be transmitted to them officially. They will have to, you know, open it up. But it'll be done away with quickly. They can vote to dismiss it pretty 
pretty qu- quickly. And so that'll be, that'll be that it'll be done. Um, but unfortunately it, it is going to take up some Senate time. And in the Senate, when you are uh, in impeachment proceedings, no other business can be done on the Senate floor. Um, so get ready for a partial shift. <laughs> um, the Senate comes back February 26th. At some point that day or, or shortly after, they will have to take time to do this, which means they can't focus on keeping the government open. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Um, again, I'm, I'm, no, gosh, no, with no, everything I, else going on, we've sort of forgotten about the um, potential uh, government shutdown, which we are now, what, two, basically, more or less, two, two weeks, weeks away from the beginning of. Yep, yep. Partial shutdown March 1st, with the other date being March 8th. And in theory... If we are not shut down um, on March 7th, the president uh, will be giving the State of the Union. But if it is shut down, it's my understanding that he he can't give his State of the Union um, with with the government shut down. So uh, lots of stuff happening. It's a very it's been a very exciting year. It's only February 14th. I know. Do you ever w- wish, like I do, that it would be a little less exciting? Very much. I would love to be bored (laughs) for a day, even just a day. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I know it used to be when I was uh, back in the news business that summer would come along and, you know, you'd be scratching your head trying to figure out what kind of features or how to how to fill the the shows because, you know, just it was like a it was like a sleepy time. And it used to for those of us in the news business, it was kind of annoying um, because there wasn't, you know, a lot to report on. And I didn't realize then that I would look back on those times wistfully. Uh, I never would have believed that I would be like, oh, my God, I remember what this used to be like, that there used to be times when there were at least lulls between big stories. And, you know, tying that together, the fact that there's been so much happening so fast for so long and, you know, starting, you know, before right before Trump's first term, I think a lot of people are complaining about, let's say, you know, uh, Joe Biden being called, you know, a, a sweet old man is more newsworthy than Donald Trump saying, yeah, that NATO, it really sucks. And I think Putin should uh, invade a NATO country and, and I would support him in that. And it's like it gets it gets such uh, so underreported because I think we're just just tired so many yeah. of the mainstream media reporters are just tired and we're so used to, you know, even though he's ramped up and I think Donald Trump is more dangerous and more vicious than ever before, but it's not getting reported. And I think he's just worn everybody out. Some people say that it has a lot to do with those of you in D.C. that in the Beltway, because, you know, you have this whole other way of looking at what makes news on a daily basis. And they sort of take you guys to task for this um, underreporting of the insanity. Do you think that's fair? Um, 
I don't know if it's underreporting as much as we have a problem of needing to focus on the con- the conflict. So the IRA passes. It's news for like a week. That's the Inflation Reduction Act. The Infrastructure Jobs Act passes. That's news for like a week. These are great things. These are billions of dollars going and investing infrastructure in companies in manufacturing, in people, in training, all these amazing things and lowering healthcare costs in our climate. Uh, huge, historic investments. And they're news for a week because who wants to report on that every day? So what winds up happening is that they just, they love the drama and the chaos. That is the point of it. And Donald Trump is smart in one way and one way only, and that is getting media attention. Mm-hmm. And he knows that that's exactly what they want. That's what they want to report. They want to report on the drama. They want to report on the latest, you know, nickname he gave an opponent or person that he insulted. Uh, that gets him all the eyeballs and all the ears. And he has not been wrong yet. So... I don't know if it's D.C. generally, um, but certainly I do think that maybe there has been kind of an addiction to the conflict. Uh, And I don't know if it's consumer-based or press-based. It's kind of a chicken and egg (laughs) question. Um, Because I know folks want to, you know, they need to get their stories clicked on. And that's what apparently what gets the clicks. Yeah. There's also the accusation, I want to see whether or not you think it's fair, that it's too insiderish, that um, you are rubbing shoulders with the very people you're supposed to be reporting on. And I know uh, famously Chuck Todd years ago gave an interview and somebody asked him why he wasn't tougher on people. And he said, if I'm too tough on them, they won't come back and I need access and sometimes people in uh, look at D.C. reporters and say that they don't want to be as critical as maybe circumstances warrant because they don't want to burn a bridge. Do you think that's true? Do you think that's fair? You know, it's it, um, it's not really my, you know, I've never worked on the press side um, up here in D.C., but I would I it sounds right. It sounds like it's probably true to an extent. Um, but politicians need the media as well. So I do think that there is some balance there um, that needs to be had. I do think, kind of to a broader point that you mentioned, is that we're too insidery. Um, and that's on every level, from press to how we message, how we talk to constituencies. That's something that... Um, for those of us who've been in politics for a long time and who've worked in local politics, um, we understand, I think, a little bit more. Every place has a bubble. This D.C. is a bubble. New York's a bubble. Chicago's a bubble. Miami's a bubble. L.A. is a bubble. Everyone has their own kind of like, this is our world. This is what we care about. Um, and that's fair. You know, that's it's what affects you every day, um, what you care about. Uh, and so... It's, it's making sure that we are coming out of the bubble in D.C. And, try, and really 
connecting with folks on what the effects of what is being done here have on their everyday lives. Mm -hmm. Making that connection is the challenge, I think. And I think politicians genuinely want to do that and they want to, you know, make that connection for folks, but it's very hard. There's no, there's no silver bullet. It's shoe leather work. It's getting out there in town halls. It's talking to folks. That's it. There's no, there's no shortcut to it. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's hard work, but it's definitely something that folks from, you know, here suffer from. And I do think that, you know, I can give you a little insight on, you know, congressional offices. That happens a lot between D.C. staff and their state staff, right, their district staff. There's a disconnect because the district staff's hearing, like, this is what people hear about, but the D.C. people are in their bubble and on the Hill, and they're playing the inside game. Mm-hmm. And the district folks are like, but we need this because <laughs> this is what this is what our constituents want. Um, and that's a challenge for every office. And I think some offices do it better than others. But definitely there's a bubble. There's absolutely a bubble. Laura Rodriguez and I are going to continue our discussion about politics when we come right back after this break. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. There is uh, now a press conference going on about the shooting at the uh, Kansas City Super Bowl parade today. Um, We know that one person has died. As many as 14 have been injured in in that attack two people who are described as armed persons have been taken into custody um the situation seems to be contained right now i'm sure throughout the day and for the rest of the week we're going to be getting more information on this but for now it seems to be um it seems to be wrapped up if the police are giving a news conference to tell you what's what, uh, then they're they're obviously not still um, out there looking for victims or looking for uh, more shooters. So that's where uh, that particular issue that happened uh, after we started on the air today uh, is right now. I'm joined by Laura Rodriguez, who's the vice president of government affairs at the Center for American Progress. You know, um, Laura, I'd like to take this back to kind of where we started, and that's the funding bill. You know, um, as you pointed out, Mitch McConnell is a great believer in funding Ukraine. Many people, even Mike Johnson, is a great believer in funding Israel. Um, And yet it seems that because of this question about whether or not the border is going to be included or not, or what way the border is going to be included, or maybe Donald Trump just doesn't want us to do anything when it comes to this. Um, do we, Where do you see these negotiations going? This is a really tough place. Are there even uh, negotiations? Perhaps I, I'm talking, and maybe nobody's talking to anybody about this. <laughs> uh, at the moment... There doesn't seem to be any uh, real kind of conversation going on or negotiation going on. I think, again, going to the very beginning, we need to have Mike Johnson needs to show a little leadership and have a plan. Otherwise, he's going to once again lose control of his caucus and 
there are a couple of procedural things that could happen. There's a dis- there's a process called the discharge petition, excuse me, where the minority party can bring up a bill to the floor if they have 200, you know, majority, 218 signatures that says we want to vote on this, um, even if the speaker doesn't. That it's a, it's a very complicated, I won't get into it. There's like a 30 days, it's got to be in consideration in a committee, and there's all these other steps that have to be done. But that's a, it's a tough process, doable but tough, and it would really wrangle the power of the floor from the speaker, which would make him just the, you know even weaker at this point. Um, so it's very hard to see like that him allowing that to happen. So you can see a point where he's got to say like this is our path forward. We saw him yesterday saying, well, I, I want to have a one-on-one with the president and talk about this. This could be a sign that he want, he is looking for an off-ramp and that he is trying to figure out some way to get to yes. Um, maybe saying, like, that he's gotten promises from the president to do something or another. Who knows, you know, but that, that's, one, that's one thing. Uh, we also saw earlier today... And there could be more going on because, you know, there's 30,000 things that happen in an hour around here. But we also saw earlier today that um, Brian Fitzpatrick, who heads up um, the only caucus that is bipartisan on the House, uh, he said he's talking to some folks about some possible border provisions that everybody can agree on. Good luck with that. But, okay, let's see where that goes. And then there is the funding of the government. That's coming up, which also Mike Johnson said yesterday, well, you know, we can't we can't deal with the supplemental right now. We've got to make sure that we we fund the government. Um, Would you like to wager on whether or not it's going to happen um, based on so what think, we see well, in think, the House of Representatives? I'll take that I bet. <laughs> well, I think that one of the things that might happen is that they could attach that supplemental to a government funding bill and really jam him. Now, they, they might say, well, then we're going to shut down the government, but, I mean, they might do that anyway. So you might as well give it a shot. Um, there are a lot of I, – I can't even wager now, Joan, because things are, <laughs> things are so wacky up here. Uh, it's very difficult to say what's going to happen tomorrow. Mike Johnson changes his mind three times a day. So it's very hard to predict, very hard to predict. I think in the end, they find a way to do it. I'm going to be optimistic. I think in the end, they find a way to do it. Because I do think that, I'm going to be really, really Pollyannish here for you. Um, (laughs) The the importance of Ukraine uh, funding and Israel funding and Taiwan funding, it's too great to ignore. Even if Donald Trump tells you to ignore it? Yeah, I mean, definitely for me, but yes. I mean, he hasn't really weighed in on this this package without the border. So, you know, maybe there's some wiggle room there. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're you're Pollyanna. I'm I'm maybe not quite so Pollyanna. You say that Mike Johnson 
keeps changing his mind. We know that he is definitely trying to appease Donald Trump. Do you think he is also, I mean, trying to hang on to his job, appeasing, you know, do you think some of those calls he's getting are from Marjorie Taylor Greene? And, oh, you know, yeah. there there are members of his party who could potentially throw him out of his job if he funds the government with a bipartisan bill. How insane is that? I mean, I just don't see this guy standing up to anybody. I, 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 and I don't even think, you know, it was obvious Kevin McCarthy had a naked hunger to be the speaker. It was like anything, I'll do anything, just make me speaker. Um, you know, yeah. do you, does, but I haven't gotten that sense. I mean, I certainly think Mike Johnson likes being speaker, but I don't think he has a desperate need for it the way McCarthy did. So will that give him um, the backbone that he needs to do a bipartisan government funding bill? Well, interesting question. There have also been rumors that should he, should there be a motion to vacate the speakership because of a bipartisan deal? Um, there have been rumors that Democrats have said that they would help him out um, and hmm. and keep it. Right. So any anyone from the Republican Party can bring up the motion to vacate, but they'd still need uh, two thirds of the chamber to do so. Uh, and if Democrats help him out, I mean, it's not going to endear him in any way to, <laughs> to his caucus. Yeah. But he could, in theory, stay in the job. The 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 pleasing uh, the right flank of his caucus and pleasing Trump are one and the same. He's definitely getting those calls. And he's definitely feeling that pressure. I think he feels like he's on solid ground on the border stuff. I don't know that he's on super solid ground on just the defense supplemental. That's where I think, again, there might be some wiggle room. Um, not not that he'll take up what the Senate passed, but, you know, there, there's, there, I think that there could be an off-ramp that's acceptable. Um, that would maybe leave him in the job. But to your point, he's not, he's not Kevin McCarthy. Um, I don't think that, I think the problem there is just that once you're the speaker to not be the speaker, unless you're Nancy Pelosi who left by her own volition and said, you know, I need to pass the baton. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, like if you're, if you're ousted, it's hard to just stay in as a rank and file member. Um, you know, so it's, it, then again, it's only ever happened to Kevin McCarthy. So, so <laughs> well, um, it's going to be interesting. Um, you know what we've touched on. Is there anything that you and I haven't touched on that you think I should particularly be paying attention to in the weeks and months ahead? I think this um, this theme of government working the way it should and doing what it should do to protect people. I I heard you giving the update on that horrible situation in Kansas city. And it made me think about the filibuster, which is so very insidery, you know, Senate stuff up here, but it affects people's everyday lives because the reason we don't have gun reform is because of the filibuster. Yeah. The reason we don't have abortion rights federally protected right now in legislation is because of the filibuster. 
the reason we don't have the Freedom to Vote Act right now is because of the filibuster. There are, that is government not working the way it should. That is why people think that people don't do anything up here. That they're not doing anything. And so that election last night, I think it ties all of this together. That election last night that was like, if you're not going to do something about this border issue, then we're going with the guy who's at least going to try. He's going to sit at the table with, with the other side. I think people want to see a government that is working for them, that is doing something for them, that is moving things forward. I think, I think we're going to see this theme kind of start to bubble up. Um, and, and we're going to try to connect that with your everyday life because that's what people need to know. Yes, absolutely. Um, um, thank you so much, Laura, for joining us today. Uh, it is always a, a pleasure to talk politics with you. Likewise, John. Really, really enjoy it. Uh, Laura Rodriguez is a uh, vice president of government affairs at the Center for American Progress. We are going to take a break uh, for news. I didn't want to say anything earlier because I wasn't 100 percent sure, but it looks like we are set now and that at 430 today, we are going to have a conversation with former U.S. Senator, current comedian on tour, Al Franken, is going to be joining me. Um, but we will be back with more local politics right after this. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by older person Jesse Fuentes, who represents the 26th Ward in the city of Chicago. Jesse, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, there's a couple of things I want to talk to. I know that I focus a lot on what's going to happen in November of 2024, uh, but there is going to be uh, a ballot in the Chicago area on March 19th, and there's some uh, important initiatives that are going to be on that ballot. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that. Absolutely. On March 19th, we will have a ballot measure popularly known uh, to be brought to the ballot by Bring Chicago Home. The ballot number one question is going to ask voters in the city of Chicago if they are okay with increasing the real estate tax transfer on homes um, or any property sold for a million dollars or more. This real estate tax transfer increase will produce a permanent revenue in the city of Chicago that will seek to house um, and develop public housing for our unhoused neighbors in the city of Chicago. Today, we have over 68,000 Chicagoans that are experiencing homelessness, whether that's street-based homelessness, whether they're doubled up or they are in shelter. Um, we live in the third largest city uh, in the country in which housing should be a right and not a privilege. This ballot measure poses the questions uh, to the citizens of the city of Chicago uh, to vote that up or down. Um, we're asking individuals in the city to vote yes on this measure so that we can finally do what's right, and that is to house our neighbors and to provide them the wraparound services they deserve, whether that is case management of resources, mental health services, substance abuse services. We know that providing a roof over individuals' head is not enough. We need to make sure we're addressing the root causes that rendered them homeless in the first place. This uh, Bring Chicago Home measure, assuming it passes, <clears throat> is there 
Um, in anywhere in the in the ordinance or any uh, spelled out anywhere exactly how this money is going to be spent? Yes. Yeah, so right now um, there is uh, some parameters in place that uh, tell uh, not just legislators but citizens that this money is strictly to be used uh, to build um, pathways to permanent housing. So whether that is non-congregate shelters, there are a pathway to housing, whether that is um, additional um, public housing rental units, um, and it ha- also has to be paired with staffing up and beefing up the wraparound resources uh, that are needed to provide each individual. Um, and that money cannot be used in any other facet that's not related to pathways to permanent housing and the wraparound services our unhoused neighbors need and deserve. What are what are those wraparound services that we're talking about here? Absolutely. Uh, there are many different circumstances that uh, bring one to become homeless in their lifetime, whether it is mental health concerns and not having the appropriate mental health services um, or medication so that they can be of the most healthy mindset um, to navigate, you know, the everyday um, difficulties that is to um, be in workforce and to, and to manage a lifestyle. Or it may be that uh, there are small, like, specific things um, that are posing barriers to housing, um, and that can be legal documentation, like individuals not having birth certificates, social security cards, to then uh, get proper identification so that they can enter the workforce and therefore sustain themselves with a roof over their head. It could also be um, whether that is substance abuse counseling um, and making sure that we are staffing up the type of counselors needed to help individuals combat addiction um, in all facets, in all forms. And it also um, may be um, individuals that need um, just to enter the workforce, right? And then maybe they need a resume building, interview help, or maybe they need to enter a trade or certification program that allow them to enter the workforce to make a livable wage. And so the the wraparound services are going to be uh, diverse and robust um, in the way that meets each individual need. That it has been argued that that it, this um, money is going in so many different directions that it would be better just to just to build houses, whether you buy a. You take some land from the CHA, rehab buildings, build um, tiny houses for people to move into. Uh, some people have argued that the money is is going in too many different directions. What do you think about that? I think that's an argument that is still fear in folks. Look, I think that this, it is very clear that this funding is going towards the development of housing. We know that there's not enough rental uh, stock in the city of Chicago to house our unhoused neighbors, but building houses is just not enough. You could put an individual that's experiencing homelessness um, in a home, whether that is a county ho- tiny house or whether that is a rental unit or whether it's a large home through affordable home ownership. But if you're not grappling and dealing with the root causes that rendered them there in the first place, that individual is still at risk of being homeless again. And so for us, extremely important not just to build and develop homes um, and rental units across the city of Chicago, but to provide the individuals with the services that they need and deserve. Um, we got to create permanent solutions to what is a very serious problem in the city of Chicago. We just can't put band-aids over it. The other piece is, look, we do not have a permanent revenue source 
that will allow us to build homes and combat homelessness in perpetuity. This revenue will allow us to not just fight homelessness today, but fight homelessness decades from now and make sure that we are supporting generations to come that may experience issues um, that may render them homeless. And so this permanent revenue source seeks to tackle just that. Um, I have a I have a question about this. Who is going to be in charge of um, keeping track of all this money and and exactly how it's spent? And will that information be shared with the with the public? Will there be like a a yearly report of this much money we took in? Um, you know, X went here, X went there. Yeah, absolutely. Those are fantastic questions. The city, the dollars will be operated by the city. Once this passes in the primary, we will all be tasked to go back to city council and really um, outline and, and hash out the details of uh, how often, right, are we making an assessment of how effective uh, the, the revenue is in terms of combating homelessness? How do we put together comparative data that really helps articulate the narrative to the general public? I think that we've all been very clear, right? Uh, transparency is extremely important to us. And we not only want to be transparent, open, and honest about the money that this revenue source is bringing in, but also how it's going out and what it's going towards. Um, and so the time of, of how often reports will be uh, produced and sent out and how that's shared, uh, all of those, those details are to come as well. What's the timetable? If this measure gets passed, on the 19th, um, how quickly will it take effect? How quickly will you draw up that plan for who's going to monitor how the money is collected and spent? Immediately. We will immediately go back after the primaries to take on uh, this project. And that is the commitment we've made from the very beginning. Uh, but in order to uh, create all of all of the details and the nuances, we need to make sure that the voters are okay with creating this revenue source uh, in the first place. And that's why we're taking it to the ballot on March 19th. And, uh, Jesse, a similar measure was passed in Los Angeles. But rather than being $1 million, the threshold was $5 million for the tax to increase. And some people are arguing that, you know, this isn't, it's been referred to as the mansion tax, but there are a lot of older folks who have two flats and three flats that they use uh, as an income source. And in the city of Chicago, especially, it de- a little bit depends on your neighborhood, but the idea of a two flat or a three flat selling for less than a million dollars isn't isn't real realistic right now and and the argument is why wasn't the amount higher to protect some of these folks yeah uh so so the increase to the real estate tax transfer um is not astronomical. Um, and that's why uh, the million-dollar threshold, we believe, was one that was doable. Um, look, the real estate tax transfer is a one-time tax on the sale of the property. This is not going to impact property taxes um, or rental of those units. Yes, so, I know, but when those um, folks, if you're a senior citizen and you have a two-flat or a three-flat or a four-flat, and you go to sell it, say you decide you know, you're going to move to Florida or something, you know, this could be a this could be a significant amount for somebody who, you know, really hopes to squeeze every penny out of that. 
sort of thing. And the other argument has been made by the business community that at a time when we have uh, vacancies, commercial vacancies are at an all-time high downtown, that this is a further impediment to um, people investing in commercial property. Um, those are the two main arguments I've heard against this measure. How would you answer both of those critics? Yeah, absolutely. And I I appreciate the criticism, and I think that the dialogue from the very beginning has been one that is extremely important. Uh, look, we believe that the sales of these uh, places are, are not going – it's not going to hinder the sale, uh, given the direction that the city of Chicago is going. And we are seeing vacancies, and we're recovering from those vacancies after COVID. The city of Chicago still is one of the most attractive cities, both for the business sector and residents that choose to move to large cities across the United States. This real estate tax transfer increase is not going to stop that. Again, I think that those are points that seek to instill fear in folks. I think the individuals that are selling buildings, whether that's $1 million, $3 million, or $10 million, will be able to afford the real estate tax transfer increase at the rate that is set through this ordinance. Uh, and the other side to this is, look, we have all been concerned with the growing tent encampments across the city of Chicago. We have Chicagoans who have lived here their entire lives, contributed to our economy, have been a part of our workforce. Some of them have even been our veterans protecting the very democracy of this country. They deserve housing. And we cannot talk about the growing tent encampments or the need of Chicagoans if we're not willing to create a revenue source that puts them first. And so I ask every Chicagoan, as they cast their vote on March 19th in our primary election, uh, that they think about the individuals who have had to sleep on cold winter days, on cold floors, because they didn't have the amount of resources needed to get them under a roof. Uh, these are, are human beings that deserve to be treated with dignity and respect, and this type of, of funding stream will do just that. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to, to talk to you about today is um, the Peace Book Ordinance. What is that? Absolutely. That's a fantastic question. The Peace Book Ordinance is an ordinance that seeks to create a commission um, in the city of Chicago that is staffed up by young people um, who live, reside, and have experienced the violence in the community areas in which we are experiencing them the most. Young people, uh, in particular, are very keened in and knowledgeable about what is creating the issues in their communities in the first place. Uh, this commission will seek to produce a resource that really tells the city of Chicago, both city agencies, departments, but constituents, residents, academic institutions, about all of the resources that can be utilized to build a better, safer uh, city. The Commission will be staffed with young people that are paid livable salaries that are contributing uh, to the safety of the city. In this past budget, we were able to get the Department of Family Support Services to commit to a workforce element to create peacekeepers. Um, we are going to have young people working through the summer and the fall really looking at some of the issues, whether those are gang issues um, or other uh, violent issues in the city of Chicago, just here, are these, is this about, the same thing as violence interrupters? 
uh, it seeks to utilize some of the tools, but it's different. And let me tell you why. We have violence prevention intervention programs across the city of Chicago, and many of them to be effective um, in their intervention. This seeks to look at violence in the city of Chicago as a public health crisis. And, and that's the only way to look at some of the gun violence that we are seeing, is that if we are only looking at it as a thing to intervene and not a thing to prevent and not um, an issue and a systemic issue to resolve for, then what we will always be doing is just intervening um, in, in violence in the city of Chicago. This commission is going to look at how do we make the necessary infrastructure investments, for example, in our communities to prevent violence? How are we engaging young people in a different way that keeps them um, out of some of the, the, the activities that get them in trouble? And how do we engage them productively? Um, but it also centers the voice of young people. Um, so these are young people who are going to be recruited and as, as some of these uh, peacekeepers or on uh, neighborhood peace commissions, and they are going to, what, um, assess their neighborhoods and try to put together what their neighborhoods need? Uh, do I have that right or not? Well, it's a, it's a bit more nuanced than that. We're not recruiting these young people. These young people are doing the work. What we're doing is affirming the work um, and elevating the work that they're already doing in their communities. They're not just going to be peacekeepers in the streets of the city of Chicago. These are folks that are going to give policy recommendations, be at the table with legislators, give the experiences needed so that we can pass legislation in the city of Chicago that truly makes the difference um, in in all of the 77 neighborhoods, the beautiful neighborhoods that we have. And so these young people are going to be a part of making the difference and a part of the decision making for how we just don't intervene in uh, violence in the city of Chicago, but how we prevent it for the foreseeable future. So are these young people who are already you said they're already out there doing this work. Are they doing it through neighborhood organizations? And is that how they would come to the table or would they be city employees in some sort of new division? Again, I'm a, uh, I need a, a little clarity here. Yeah, absolutely. So these young people pertain to a collective called Good Kids Mad City. Um, and they have been uh, really taking a look at violence in the city of Chicago and how we combat it. The, the commission, in fact, would be young people who become city employees. Uh, we are looking to um, place this sort of commission within the Chicago Public Health Department Um so that, again, we can look at violence in the city of Chicago as a public health crisis, as it should, and really um, identify the type of policy legislation and resources that are needed to prevent um, violence. And so, yes, to answer your question, the commission of young people would, in fact, become city employees. And what department would they be in? And would this co um, require a fresh allotment of funds or the redistribution of funds that are already allocated in other areas? How would they be paid is the bottom line of what I'm trying to ask here. Absolutely. So we are having a subject matter hearing next month. We've been working and having conversations with the administration, the Department of Family Support Services, and CDPH to really work through the questions that you are asking now. Uh, this particular piece of legislation is a budget measure. It's a budget ask, um, and it's a budget ask that we seek to pass for the 2025 budget. And so we are going to work through all of these questions through our subject matter hearings, um, which will be a series that begin in March. Mm -hmm. 
Um, Jesse, thank you for joining us and bringing us up to speed on what you are working on. Um, uh, we will see how this ballot measure fares. I know that there's a lot of power behind it. Um, and thanks for talking us, to us about the Peace Book Ordinance as well. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about critical issues. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, um, we have an update on the situation in Kansas, Kansas City. With more on that right after this. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. There was supposed to be a parade in Kansas City today celebrating the victory, the Super Bowl victory of the Kansas City Chiefs. That parade interrupted when gunfire broke out. We are now getting the word that one person is dead and how many? There's different reports somewhere between 10 and 15 people were injured. Um, no, I mean, it, it was bound to happen sooner or later that we're having a shooting on at the anniversary of another shooting. But today happens to be the anniversary of the Parkland School mass shooting. Um, pretty much uh, we're going to have pretty much every day of the calendar covered by a mass shooting uh, pretty quick. So there'll always be an anniversary when the next one happens. There was a press conference today. We know that between 10 and 15 people were injured. One person is dead and two people are in custody. There was a big press conference today where uh, law enforcement officials talked about this Um after the press conference ended, the Kansas City police chief, Stacy Graves, uh, came back to the microphone to make some final comments about the police response and some other things. Um, we are going to share that with you right now. I just have one thing to say. This is not Kansas City. I'm, I'm angered by, by what happened. But I want you to know that the, the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department and all the law enforcement officers that were there today that were serving and protecting did the best that they could. And I'm so proud of them that they ran into danger, getting two people into custody and at the same time rendering life sustaining aid to those victims. We were here for a safe celebration. And because of two bad actors or more it is why we're standing here today. We will recover as a city. I, I, my heart goes out to um, our, our victim who is deceased, but your police department stands ready, and we are, are invested in the safety and betterment of Kansas City. Thank so you. Be you we'll send you guys more updates on Twitter, okay? Follow the Twitter account, and we'll put the updates that we have. A police chief, Stacy Graves, talking after the um, shooting today. CNN, uh, um, before I saw even on anything on Twitter, um, CNN was reporting about this shooting. And in the uh, early stages of the reporting, they had some um, raw footage that they aired. And um, I know one person is dead and we know that 10 to 15 are reported as injured. But this raw footage showed two people on the ground, both having CPR administered to them. 
Um, so clearly, some of the injuries were very serious in this shooting. That has occurred, as I said, on the um, anniversary of the uh, Parkland School mass shooting. Um, something that um, has happened and is going to continue to happen. And pretty soon we're going to have so many of them that every time we bring you the news of a mass shooting, we'll be able to share with you what other mass shooting took place on this particular day. Because we can't seem to get any kind of gun control at the federal level. For, you know, for 10 years, people who say we can't have an assault weapons ban, we had one. We had one for 10 years. And it expired under the Bush administration. There was some talk of extending it. And then it was like, nah, we don't need to do that. And so they didn't. Another reason why I hope there is a huge Democratic wave, a Democratic tsunami in 2024, because we need to get some of this stuff done. And then maybe we won't have a mass shooting on the anniversary of another mass shooting. We are going to take a break. We are going to talk with a former senator, current comedian on tour and coming to Chicago, Al Franken, after this. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 a.m., WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Uh, This February 24th and 25th at Chicago's City Winery, Al Franken is going to be in town for two shows on Saturday and two shows on Sunday. It has uh, been too long. I personally am going to the 830 show on Sunday. I know we gave away a couple of pairs of tickets to that show, and I hope those people come up and (laughs) say hello. And uh, to give us a preview of what he thinks about what's going on in the world and uh, maybe what we might hear at City Winery, Al Franken joins us. Al, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Joan. Um, I'm unfortunately, I would like to start with the big news of the day, which is another another shooting at the Kansas City yep. Parade to honor the Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs. It's like, are we never going to be able to hold any kind of public event in the near future? And do you see any future politically where there's gun control? I certainly hope so. You know, I was in the Senate when Sandy Hook happened, and I could not believe that we couldn't get, we couldn't even get background checks uh, then. And, you know, we couldn't get high capacity, getting rid of high capacity clips. I mean, I was a co-sponsor of the assault weapons ban, and it's, there's something really wrong with our country and there's really something wrong with our politics around guns. Uh, I don't know if there are red flag laws in in Missouri. I don't know anything about this shooting. Um, I don't know what what's related to and what the cause of it was. But no, it's it's um, there's something sick in our society that we have so many more of these gun deaths than. Um, than they have in other countries. And we, we, we 
have to do that. I mean, most Americans believe in background checks and believe in uh, background checks at gun, uh, uh, you know, gun sales uh, that that aren't in stores and stuff. It, it's uh, this is just sickening. It, uh, it it also doesn't make any sense, but so much of politics doesn't make any sense to me. Um, it has become, I mean, I, I know that there's always been a Republican Party. There's always been a Democratic Party, and there have always been compromises that left maybe nobody feeling like they got everything they wanted. But we seem to be... In a, in a position where not only are we dug in on culture war stuff, you know, like the, our party has this position on guns. And if you belong to our party, this has to be your position. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when there were, um, you know, when there were Republicans who openly supported abortion rights. And I can't imagine, even oh, if yeah. those people still exist, that they would have the courage to say that anymore. It's we've really become um, at least Republicans have become you're you're either all in with us or you're not one of us. When did that happen? And 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 is that self-sustaining? Can we get rid of it? It seems to have gotten worse and worse. And, of course, uh, Trump now controls this party in a way where. There was a bill that was uh, negotiated for over four months uh, between James Lankford, the uh, very conservative senator from Oklahoma, uh, Chris Murphy from and uh, Miller Road Democrat from Connecticut, and it was a very, very uh, it was it was a bill that Republicans really dictated more than Democrats, and. Uh, this was a bill that the ha- that uh, Mike Johnson in the House had asked for and said he wouldn't vote for aid to Ukraine unless uh, it, it, uh, this was passed. And then Trump says, "No, I want to. I want to have the border as an issue. I don't want it solved." And that's why we, why Republicans withdrew their votes for this in the Senate. And this is a uh, this is this is really sick. Because we have to do something about the border. There are things in this bill that I probably wouldn't have been for, but we we have reached a crisis point. We have like a nine-year or ten-year backlog on on uh, when people get it uh, on asylum. This would get hire a lot more asylum judges, and this would process people in six months. There are so many good things in this. And uh, it, it is as if Trump has told the Republican Party, all you need, you know, is just just me. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just yeah. you just go with whatever I say. And that is not the way it should be working. Especially I'm, curious, with this I'm curious about something. I mean, Donald Trump has said that all he cares about is uh, is loyalty, not expertise, not experience, not your resume, just loyalty. That's why he is pushing his daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, somebody who, according to Michael Cohen, he never even really liked. But he's pushing her as the new head of the Republican National Committee. And she has said, I think she just said this today, that if she is made head of the RNC, 
all of the money that it collects is going to go entirely to Donald Trump. Now, don't you think there have to be Republicans who want to run for office or who are running for reelection who are going to scratch their heads and say, wait a minute, aren't we all supposed to share that money? I mean, good grief. They continue to support him and he's going to cut them off at the knees like this. Yeah. And uh, those people be afraid to say anything. Ugh. Why are they so afraid, Al? Why are they all so afraid? Because they see what happened to Adam Kinzinger. Well, they see what happened to anybody who who stood up to him, and they're all gone. Basically, that's that's been the history it's from the uh, very beginning of the Trump administration. So many of my colleagues, I was there when he came in. But so many of my Republican colleagues had no respect for him, but one after one after uh, after another. Uh, had to show their fealty to him, and they saw that people like Jeff Flake and uh, others, uh, if they showed any independence at all, uh, were cut off. And, and Jeff had to, you know, not run for reelection. And uh, Bob Corker just couldn't couldn't really take it, and he left from Tennessee. So. Um, Yeah, this is a party that's run by one man. I talked uh, last week to a guy by the name of Pat Brady. I don't know if you ever knew him. He was head of the uh, Illinois Republican uh, Party for a while. And uh, about, you know, at the beginning of all this nonsense, about 10 years ago or so, he was uh, drummed out of that job because he had the audacity to support gay marriage. And, you know, he said the old Republican Party was the party of get government out of our lives. We want as little, the smallest government possible. They should stay out of our lives. He said, so I felt that that was perfectly in line with those values. And he was kicked to the curb. Um, It just um, it seems like the the party of 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 what is now the party of Trump, if you will, the, they don't care about any of the values. I mean, the Republican Party, you know, of Ronald Reagan was, you know, we're going to get those commies, not, uh, you know, I'm going to stand by and applaud while Vladimir Putin invades a NATO country. I feel like I right. have fallen down the rabbit hole yeah. and I'm in some sort of strange opposite land now. Yeah, I mean, what what Trump said the other day, that if, first of all, the, our NATO allies do pay their dues. So that was ridiculous. But he said if a country got behind in its dues to NATO that and, and Russia decided to attack it, he'd say, go ahead. Well, no, we're, we're supposed to actually, part of NATO is if one of the NATO countries is attacked, we all, all, all the NATO countries uh, fight on their behalf. That's that is the uniting principle of, of NATO. And what he is saying is, is so anathema to anybody who understands the history of NATO and of the this Atlantic alliance. I wanted to uh, talk to you about this coming presidential election. As I'm sure you know, uh, Tom uh, Swozy was reelected in uh 
in New York, uh, the, seat, the yeah. seat that John, uh, George Santos, <laughs> I'm sorry, filled for uh, far too long, um, and that previously was filled by Swozy, he won that seat back last night. Can we look at that and say, okay, this shows that we are on track to do well in 2024? How do you see the election of November 2024? Well, I, you know, I... I, I think you can try to draw too much out of one race, but Fozzie ran a great race, and he um, ran basically saying that that border deal that had been negotiated in the Senate should have been passed, and and made a big deal out of that, which I think got him on offense on on immigration, and there were other issues that uh, that, that people in in his district cared about that uh, Democrats are clearly better on. And I, uh, I, it, it does bode well. And we did badly in New York in the in House seats we should have won last time, uh, enough of them that we probably could have changed the, the balance of who, had, who controlled the House. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I certainly hope this, this bodes well, but you, you don't want to read too much in the one, in, in the one race. You ran a great race, so. Yeah. Uh, some people are saying that they really applaud some of the statements made by Joe Biden lately, especially when he seems to channel his dark Brandon personality and that he is being more blunt and that he is being tougher and that he's making fun, you know, of his age. Um, and 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 some yep. people say he should do that every time he's, he should take the power out of that issue by addressing it every time. Well, you know, I'm not sure I can answer that question. You know, I'm 81, but let me give it a shot. You know, what do you think about a strategy like that? Because people who come from the world of comedy are used to being very blunt and seeing things very clearly. Yeah, I would like to see him do a series of uh, Get Off My Lawn videos. (laughs) You know, um, have fun with us. And uh, I think he's got a good sense of humor. Uh, and uh, even that press conference, when uh, when the guy from Fox asked him the question, he said, yeah, well, I, I guess I do have bad judgment. I called on you. <laughs> and he, he um, uh, I, I, I'd like to be able to see him, him more and see him out on the stump. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, crazy rallies. Recently, you guest hosted um, on The Daily Show, and I read just in the last few days that of all the guest hosts they had, you got the biggest ratings. Um, and you, you've got this comedy show that you are bringing to a city winery. That must make you feel pretty good, you know, that um, as probably, and I say this as somebody who is very much in your demographic, uh, probably was the oldest person to fill in for The Daily Show. Let's hear it for the old people. I I did get the highest rating, but my demographic was a little older. I will say that. (laughs) So your demographic was me. I'm so sorry, Al. Well, uh, usually when I perform, I, I do uh, bring out uh, people in our demographic, mm-hmm. a lot of them, but other demographics, too. And, uh, and and by that, I mean people older. No, no, actually, uh, we have I have a wide range in, in, in my audience, but I, I do like to see uh, 
people in our demographic. Yeah. Uh, just a few months ago, I saw uh, Craig Ferguson came to town. And, you know, I mean, when he was back doing his late, late show, I think it was on CBS. Um, I remember he yeah. did a he did a tour and he was down at the Chicago Theater, which has like, I don't know, 3000 seats. And I saw him a few months ago. He hasn't really toured at all or done much since he he left late night television. Um, and it, he was so funny because he looked out over the audience and he said, you know, this is something that I've been seeing at all of these dates that I've been doing. And he said, young people. And he looked at the audience and he was like, what are you doing here? Do you even know who oh, I man. am? But there does seem to be a big appetite in the in the quote unquote younger crowd uh, for those of us of a certain age who um, were very successful and are still in in many demographics still admired. Is it hard for you? Uh, putting together a show that is that tries to have a broad reach. Are there things that younger people laugh at that I might not get? <laughs> well, usually the young people who come to see me are somewhat, uh, you know, politically minded. Uh, I don't, I don't, you know, I, now I do do uh, clubs around here uh, in New York and preparation for doing uh, the shows that I'm doing, which are, again, our kind of workshop shows to build, build an act. Uh, but, uh, you know, I've been performing in front of audiences where um, that, uh, you know, aren't, aren't they're at the Comedy Cellar or they're someplace else where they aren't coming to see me. And they get it. They get what I'm talking about. And, they, and it's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of audience comes to see a comedy show? What can you tell uh, me about your audience? Well, again, my audience usually comes, they come because they like me. And if they like me, they usually like political stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, But they also like just my brand of comedy that I've been doing for a long, long time. You know, I was one of the original SNL writers. So that was starting in 1975. So it gives you some idea of... <laughs> of uh, you know, my my wife and I uh, tonight are uh, it's, it's Valentine's evening, and uh, someone asked us how long we've been together, and it's like ridiculous. It's like fifty five years or something. Wow! But, yeah. Wow! Congratulations but, uh, on that. That's uh, that's almost unheard of. Um, how are you going to celebrate Valentine's very- Day? You know, we were going to go out to a romantic dinner, but we decided to cook up a steak and some potatoes, some baked potatoes, and, uh, you know, and a healthy vegetable. You're going to just, home. yeah, um, my partner uh, and I decided the same thing. You know, I know the restaurants are going to be jam-packed tonight, and... I, I told him, I said, you know, let's just the two of us cook cook a dinner together. I mean, that's, I guess <laughs> that's as romantic as I'm ready to be. Uh, but I've never really been a big Valentine's Day person. When you come uh, to Chicago, are there any things uh, that you really want to make sure you do? Any restaurants you want to eat at? Any sites you want to see? 
I really want to focus on the show. I, mm-hmm. you know, I want to. That's 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 really what I'm I'm coming in for. So, you know, I have a few friends that I I, I hope to see, and um, but no, I, I don't. I I haven't been. Uh, that has that hasn't been my focus. Mm-hmm. Is it hard doing two shows a day? Uh, no, no. It's actually uh, I like doing two shows. Really? You, you, oh yeah, because you, um, you you get some momentum from that first show, and and also I'm working on seeing what works, and what doesn't work, mm-hmm. and I think I'll get a better idea as the uh, as the week goes on. Is there That's a difference the from That's show the- to show? Is it the same show, or do you try different things? I might be trying different <laughs> some different things. Uh, you know if. If uh, some stuff is, if, if something isn't working, I may abandon it and try something new. Are um, Midwestern audiences different than the ones that come to the clubs out east? I don't think so. I don't think so. I, you know, when I tour, uh, when I did my last tour, I, I didn't feel that at all. It felt like, again, I feel it's kind of like my audience, you know? Mm-hmm. It's an Al Franken audience. Fun. Yeah, so the Al Franken fans in Chicago and the Al Franken fans in Nashville or the Al Franken fans in uh, Pittsburgh or in Minneapolis, they're Al Franken fans. So there's some some sensibility there, I think. Who do you think is funny? Oh, my God. Uh, well, John Mulaney is Chicago, right? Uh-huh. I think he's hilarious. He's one of the greats. You know, uh, I really, so, I really yeah. like him too. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't? So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of a lot of, a lot of, a lot of comedians. There, Ben Oswald, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, Jim Gaffigan, um, uh, just a, uh, a Sarah Silverman. I'm a big fan of. Uh, she's a good friend of mine, Dana Carvey. Uh, you know, just uh, I'm almost afraid to just keep naming some <laughs> all these people and not and leaving out a good friend. Well, um, I uh, I think it's going to be great fun. I am really looking forward to uh, seeing you. Um, if people can't catch you at City Winery, because I know that. The tickets were uh, selling like hotcakes. Are you going to be in any other cities uh, in the Midwest? Uh, in the Midwest, uh, not uh, really yet. Mm. Anyway, but maybe, uh, maybe soon. No, I'm, I'm kind of going to Nashville. That's not the Midwest. No. That's uh, and Atlanta. That's also the South. And Pittsburgh. That's the East. And Philly. That's the East. And Boston. That's the East. So that's what I know about so far. Well, I hope the audiences are uh, great, and I know you will be, and I am so pleased um, that you were able to take some time to join us. And again, he's going to be there February 24th and 25th. There's two shows each day, and um, they may may be sold out. You might be able to, you might have to go to a reseller. But um, I think it's going to be wonderful, and I thank you, Mr. Franken, for being here. I, I don't think they're sold out, and I think that uh, I think the second show on 
on on uh, Monday might not be because I think uh, Monday is a work day, or is it? Is, it, is, it, is Monday going to be a work day? Yeah, um, President's Day is the nineteenth. You might have, um, if you were there oh, the, okay. this weekend, you might have had some people staying up late. But um, you know, the twenty sixth is a work day for me, and I'm still coming to the late show on Sundays. Uh, so you know, I'm sure I won't be the only one. I don't think the late show is all that late. So like yeah. an eight thirty show. Well, it's yeah. it's late <laughs> for those of us in the Midwest. You know. <laughs> Of course, I don't know. I saw Jamie Lee Curtis recently gave an interview where she said rock concerts should take place at 2.30 in the afternoon so you can go see them and have a great time and still be in bed by 9. Uh, she's not wrong. Well, uh, I'll be excited to have everybody there and have to see you if you can come say hi after the show. Um, I would, I would love, I would love to do that. Or, you know, maybe just during the show, I'll just stand up on my chair and start waving, you know, and make sure you know I'm there. (laughs) Okay. I won't do do that. that. Okay. That would be bad. That would be bad. I'll instruct people to have you take it out. All right. Okay. That's fair. All right. That's fair. Al Franken. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, that is going to do it for me. Uh, the lovely Patty Vasquez is uh, going to be coming up. Uh, remember that um, we now have Richard Chu on every morning here on WCPT. He is on from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. So uh, he starts our day off. I will be here tomorrow, of course, at um, same bat time, same bat station, 2 o'clock. I will be here. And... Um, you know, I will be at the Al Franken show Sunday the 25th. I'm going to the 8.30 show. So if you see me sitting there, um, come on over and say hello. Or better yet, buy me a drink. Even better. <laughs> uh, stay safe, my friends. Have a great evening. And uh, good night. <laughs>